the guarantee of the gospel. And we begin today with a study of the book of Colossians. After our introduction, we'll consider the interpretation of the gospel, what is it? Then the commendation of the Colossian church on the part of the Apostle Paul and intercession for the Colossian church. Why would we study a book that is almost 2,000 years old? What possible relevance could something that old offer to the millennial generation or the echo boomers who were born in the early 1980s right on through to the early 2000s? We want to find out this morning, is there any relevance? Solomon gives us a hint in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. That which has been been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Solomon is speaking, of course, of the nature of man and his condition. So there's nothing new under the sun. But there is much to do under the gun And Christianity is always under the gun because we have an enemy who is relentless. So here would be some reasons why we should study the book of Colossians by way of introduction. We live in a day of militant atheism. Oxford professor Richard Dawkins has urged all atheists to be informed and to be united and to state their position and fight against the incursion of the church into politics and science. He didn't like the term atheist because that sounds a little subversive or seditious, so he's coined a new term, bright. If you don't believe in God, supposedly you are bright. And he's written a book, The God Delusion, and in this book he critiques religion. And he rails against the creationists and those who believe in intelligent design. And he tells us that we need to endorse the same thing that he holds dear, and that would be scientific principles. He has even set up a foundation to train young people in camps. He wants them to understand rational skepticism, moral philosophy, ethics, and evolution. I'd hate to see everything that they are being taught. But the Apostle Paul is undaunted by that sort of thing. And he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, when you see there the firstborn of all creation, that doesn't mean that Christ is a created being. That is referring to position in the family, not to time. The firstborn son is the one who has the greatest honor. And Christ is the one who has all honor, preeminent in all of the universe. We live in a day of ecumenical initiative. The goal of the movement is to bring interdenominational Christian fellowship into organic union. 
And there are some who would want to follow a biblical approach to bring us into a unity of spirit and purpose in the body of Christ. But we have to be careful with that. And 2005 Time magazine produced an issue with a cover story entitled <clears throat> Hail Mary. David Van Bema wrote that Protestants are beginning to find their own reasons to celebrate the mother of Jesus. Numerous examples were given, including the following. A man stands at the lectern of El Amor de Dios Church in Chicago's south side reading in Spanish tears streaming down his cheeks. His text is a treatment of the Virgin Mary from one of the Bible's apocryphal books. Another congregate follows, reciting his own verses to the, to the Virgin. Flanking the altar are two Mary statues. Hanging from the hands of the baby Jesus is a rosary. The altar cover represents the church's most stunning image, Mary again, this time surrounded by a multicolored halo in the traditional picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the church is Methodist. I don't think John Wesley would be signing off on all of that in the Methodist church. But Paul says, He, Christ, is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. Pope Francis has called for separated brothers, that would be ourselves, to come back into the fold. And, of course, that would mean under the authority of Rome and the Pope being the head of the church. But we see Paul telling us that Christ is the head of the church. Of course, we have the church on earth, but we are a priesthood of believers. We have elders, we have deacons. We believe that we have a hierarchy of authority set up the way the New Testament calls for. But some people take it further than that in the ecumenical movement, And they would say that we all worship one God. We just call him by different names and different ones have a different approach to how you would reach God. Paul says to that, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. We live in a day of doubt regarding the deity of Christ. There's nothing new under the sun, but much to do under the gun. Arius, Mohammed, Buddha, Confucius, Zoroaster, Vishnu, Rama, Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons, Charles Taze Russell, who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses, all were confused about Christ. You can read their writings and see that there is confusion about Christ being the Son of God and very God himself. The deity of Christ has been under the gun ever since the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. convened to combat the Arian heresy, the idea that Christ is a created being. There's no confusion with the Apostle Paul. 
in chapter 1, verse 15, and he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then we live in a day of pragmatic moral relativism. We don't care if it's true or if it's right. We want to know if it works and if it feels good. We don't care if the president commits immorality in the White House. We want to know if he can manage the economy. We don't care if government officials would lie to the general public, sometimes on a regular basis. We just wait for them to make new promises, and then we will reelect them again. We just don't care. But the Apostle Paul asked the question, what is the belief on which your life is based And is it true? For most people, it's not true because they're not following Christ or obeying his commands no matter what they say. I'm just a good old boy and the good Lord is going to be watching out for me as I continue in my sin. I don't think it's going to be that way. Now, if your belief system is false, it is true for some people that for a period of time you may go on living and it looks like you're doing pretty well. But God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap, sometime in the future and certainly in eternity. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. These are matters which, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul says not only are they not true, they don't even work. So why would people be following these self-made ideas and traditions? Because it's the natural tendency, it's our natural indulgence to follow after the world, to follow after the desires of the old nature. I like Winston Churchill's perspective on truth. The truth, he said, is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it, malice may distort it, but there it is. And here it is for us in the book of Colossians. Paul is combating in our study false doctrine and philosophy that was influencing the Colossian church. On top of that, there was the undertow of pagan culture that was sweeping people along, encouraging them to sensual indulgence, no matter what their belief was with regard to religion. Colossians were being taught that it's okay to believe in Christ, but you need to add some things on to that. There would be some further requirements that you have to go through if you really want to be in a right relationship with God. But those things would only lead to legalism and mysticism. Asceticism, punishing the body, is never the way to true spirituality. More realistically, it points to self-centeredness and to pride. Look at me. Look at what I'm able to do. 
Paul is teaching that holiness is not accomplished by coercing compliance with external disciplines. Rather, it comes from putting on Christ and through the power of his spirit, putting off the old self and those things that would drag us down that Paul is going to be telling us about even in the book of Colossians. We want to get rid of the attitudes and the words and the deeds of the old Adamic nature. And we can't take a set of external rules and accomplish that very well. Now, Paul does tell us in 1 Corinthians 9 that for a disciple, self-discipline is important. And he tells us about disciplining his body and bringing it under control. Self-control would be the last fruit of the Spirit. But self-discipline in and of itself is not a means of grace that's going to make us become more like Christ. Paul had heard about these false doctrines introduced in the church, evidently from Epaphras. Epaphras was at that time evidently with Paul in Rome. He had been converted by Paul in neighboring Ephesus when Paul was there. And then, as we read, Epaphras went to share the gospel with the people in Colossae. And a church was established there. And now he's bringing Paul a report on those people. And it is a very outstanding report. Colossae, at that time, was one of three cities located in the Lycus River Valley. This was a Roman territory in present-day Turkey, and Colossae was probably the least important of the cities. Hierapolis had some healing springs, and many people came there for health reasons. Laodicea was the capital of the district, and so that was a more important place. And by this time, Colossae was on the decline. And yet the church was there, and Paul was concerned about those Christians and wrote this letter to them which is applicable to all Christians and especially to us today. Chapter 2, verse 1, indicates that Paul had probably not been to Colossae by the time the letter was written. He may have gone later on his third missionary journey. You see Timothy mentioned there. Timothy probably acts as Paul's personal secretary. Paul may have dictated the letter to Timothy, and then just autograph the salutation in chapter 4, verse 18, as he did in other of his letters. The interpretation of the gospel. The beginning, the greeting here in the first verse, the first chapter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Here is a familiar greeting used by Paul in many of his letters. What is grace and what is peace? We know that peace begins with a person being reconciled to God. That's the only way you'll have true peace. And then God's grace gives us that ability to have an inward tranquility and composure irregardless of what is happening in outward circumstances in our lives. But what about grace? We know that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. But what are these riches? And what does God intend in giving us these great riches? Does he just want to get us to heaven? Is that his goal? 
Well, we want to find out today if a wealthy benefactor had given you an enormous endowment, I'm quite sure he would have had a purpose in giving you the gift. And God, I believe, has a purpose in giving us this amazing gift of salvation through Christ. It's not just get us to heaven. That is the gift that we get. But the goal, the goal of grace, I think, is the motivation and the power for us to become like Christ. And Paul has a word for that. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heaven is the gift. Holiness is the goal. Christ-likeness. But someone would say, well, I'm saved from hell and on my way to heaven. Yes, that's your destination, but what about the journey? For the journey, I would say, saved from sin and on my way to holiness. Holiness. Sometimes we don't like that word too much because it communicates a holier-than-thou attitude. But we're talking about Christ-likeness. That's the goal of God's grace, that we would become like Christ and live the blessed life here on earth that He lived. It won't be an easy life. We know that. But are you seeking today to become like Christ? If you are, God's grace is upon your life. Verse 3 contains a message, a summary of the message that we're going to be giving today. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Thanks to God, prayer for the Galatians. That's what we're going to be talking about. So Paul offers us grace and peace. I offer to every one of you today grace and peace peace. When Donald Whitney was here a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned in his speaking engagements around the country that he likes to ask church people the question, what is the gospel? And unfortunately, he said, many, many church people do not know the answer to that simple question. Do we know the answer? to that question. Could you say in a simple statement, what is the gospel? And tell somebody in a way that they could understand what you're talking about. Well, we should be able to because if you attend a weekly Bible study, uh, right at the tail end of April as we were meeting there, Tuesday evenings, Thursday evenings, we went in one lesson to the home-based chapter on the resurrection. And that was 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a very clear, concise definition of the gospel. Now, I make known to you, Paul says, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which I also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Now, let me stop right there and say it's not our holding fast the Word that gives us salvation, but if you are truly converted, you will be holding fast to the Word of truth. 
by which also you're saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There is the Gospel, the good news or the good story about Christ. Christ died for our sins. That statement presupposes that something is wrong with us. Something very bad is wrong with us, or why would the Son of God have to die? Well, we're sinners. We've broken God's law often. We break God's law every day. And we, because we have broken God's law, His holy and righteous law, stand condemned to hell because we are guilty. But God, in His mercy, devised a plan whereby we might be saved from the consequences of our own wrongdoing. He appointed Christ to die for our sin. He was buried, number two. Now, what's so profound about that? Many dead persons are buried. If Christ's body had not been delivered and buried and sealed and guarded, his enemies would have said that he wasn't dead anyway or that somebody stole the body. That is, in fact, exactly what they said. Even though the tomb was sealed, there was a Roman guard, and precautions were made so that no one could say that the body had been stolen or that anything else had been happened. It had happened. Number three, the resurrection. There you see the ladies looking into the empty tomb. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? I mean, everything that has transpired thus far hinges on the resurrection because Christ predicted over and over again his betrayal and his death and his resurrection. But no one was listening. So he had to be resurrected from the dead in order to authenticate the truth of what he had predicted and everything else that he had said. If he gave some good teaching but lied about his resurrection, that wouldn't do. We see people, public figures, lying all the time today. And it destroys our confidence in other things that they have said. Well, he had to validate his claims as Messiah. You might kill the Messiah, but you can't keep him dead. He was resurrected to life. And then Christ wanted to demonstrate his victory over death and the grave over hell and the devil. And the resurrection was the means by which he accomplished that. Now, you don't have to remember all that, just what is of first importance in the gospel. Christ died for our sin, he was buried, and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Has everybody got it? Now, what do we do with it? Of course, we know that we have to receive that as truth into our lives. The gospel comes with a guarantee, we have said, and Paul describes that guarantee in verses 5 through 8 of our text. But look out. This is not going to be easy because when Paul, a Jewish lawyer, 
and a Hebrew scholar gets wound up, explanation may give way to further clarification, which may lead on to elaboration and additional amplification. And Paul, when he gets rolling, just rolls right along. So we're going to have to watch carefully. In the original text, in the first chapter, there are five sentences. But one of those sentences contains 218 words. So we're going to have to follow through. We've put in a little more punctuation in our English version. But hang on, here we go. And remember, this is inspired scripture. So we have the gospel. Here is the message that we have just considered about God's plan for our redemption and salvation. So we know what it is now, but what are we going to do with it? Because we've got to have some other things in place if the gospel is going to be effective. Here is the gospel. Alexander Scorby reading the King James Bible. Now suppose we get a copy of this CD to everyone in the nation of Africa. Or for that matter, everyone in North America. Would the gospel then be effective? We get this to everyone. Well, no, there would be some other things that would have to take place. And for the guarantee to hold good, we want to look in the Scripture to see what Paul is telling us will have to accompany the Gospel. Here we go. Colossians 1, 5 and 6. The word of truth, the Gospel, which has come to you, Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. What do we have to have? Well, you have got to hear the gospel, and then you have got to understand the gospel. Now, we might get this to everyone, but they might not even have a CD player. Many people don't. They couldn't even hear the gospel. But we have learned that most people around the world have a cell phone. So we support missionaries who are getting the gospel onto the Internet so people even in closed countries can get the Bible right on their iPhone. And it goes in everywhere undetected. Amazing. Then they hear the gospel. But what about Fredericksburg? Are you willing to share the gospel with people in Fredericksburg, San Antonio? Because in Matthew 7, Jesus indicated that there are many people who do not understand the gospel, even to their eternal detriment. Well, next, God's grace in truth, the gospel, must be understood. They knew the grace of God in truth in the King James. But it's more than just knowing it. It is understanding it. And that's why we're here today at FCF, so that we can better understand the gospel. Now, we want to make a good presentation. It's going to take the Holy Spirit to bring ultimate understanding, as we will see. But this is why we're studying the book of Colossians. Several weeks ago, I was praying for Tim Bolton as he was going down to the prison, Dominguez Unit, I believe, down south of San Antonio to share the gospel. So he and his gospel buddy arrived at the prison, and it had been announced in the prison that there would be a Bible study. So they went to the room appointed, and nobody came. They waited a while. 
They said, maybe we ought to make the announcement again. So they did. And one man showed up. And they were talking with him, and he said he had been reading the Bible and had been praying. But, he said, I don't really understand what I'm reading. And somebody suggested, maybe you need to read some more. He said, I've read it three times through in the past year and a half. And I've been praying to beat the band, but I don't understand it. He was like that Ethiopian eunuch that Philip was directed to, who was sitting in his chariot reading from Isaiah 53, but he didn't understand what he was reading. He needed somebody to explain it to So Tim began to explain the gospel, what he had been reading, and for about the next hour or so, they talked about the explanation, and the Holy Spirit illumined the guy's heart to understand, and he prayed to commit his life to Christ. That's what we are looking for. We need to not only just say, hey, buddy, here's the gospel. Take this and listen to it. We need to be able to give a brief explanation. We're sinners. Christ died for our sin. He was buried, but he has been resurrected from the dead. And he wants to resurrect you as well in due time. Now, these two conditions are not met hearing and understanding, then we don't close the circuit. But if we do close the circuit, something else is coming. By the way, see that arrow going back toward the gospel? That means that even though we have heard the gospel many times, we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. And we always come back to the wonder and the amazement of what God has done for us in the gospel. Verses 5 and 6. The word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Well, we're going somewhere with the gospel. What's coming according to the verse? The gospel is going to be bearing fruit, and the gospel is going to be increasing. The word oxano, increasing or growing, I think in some translations, means that for something or someone to increase, there has to be an outside force that acts upon it. Something from the outside has to help us to grow or increase. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 3 where he says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Specifically, that's God's Holy Spirit who brings illumination, who brings understanding of the gospel. Now, when somebody hears the gospel, we call that the outer call. The outer call is going out to everyone sitting in this congregation today. But for some people, it goes right in one ear and right out the other because something else has to happen. They're hearing it, but they're not understanding it. The outer call goes to everyone, but we have a problem. Paul states the problem in 1 Corinthians 2. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now at that point, the Holy Spirit 
takes the outer call and sends it right to the heart. And the man begins to understand what he is hearing. It's called regeneration in the scripture. He begins to see, hey, that gospel call applies to me. And I need to make a response to it. I need to receive the gospel because it's offered as a free gift to me. And the Holy Spirit makes it to be effective. We're told about that in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. All of these are the writings of the Apostle Paul. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We call it being born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, Jesus tells us. Now we're getting somewhere with the gospel. It is growing, it is increasing, it is bearing fruit. And Paul is commending the Colossian church for what it's producing in them. It's guaranteed if we don't leave out anything. And it's intended that we continue to grow right on throughout our lives. So our last, next to last section, commendation of the Colossian church. Is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? If it is, then you will have something else. Hope. Do you have hope? This morning, if you have the gospel and if it's bearing fruit, that's one of the fruit that it's going to bear. Something has happened in verse 4 as a result of something else mentioned in verse 5. Take a look at it. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So that hope is going to produce something. If you're following along in the scripture there, the hope that the Colossian Christians had of this inheritance laid up for them in heaven produced faith in Christ and love for the saints. That's almost like Jesus' summary of the law, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This hope is producing something. And this is a commendable testimony that Epaphras is bringing from the Colossian church. Faith, hope, and love. Gifts of God, but these people have chosen to exercise their gifts. Are we exercising our gifts? Not just our spiritual gifts, but our gifts of faith, hope, and love. Now, Paul talks about faith, hope, and love all over the place. Romans 5, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Ephesians 4, and the most well-known, 1 Corinthians 3, 13. But now abide these, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But there's something greater than love back in verse 5, and it is Truth. Truth. 
If you don't have the truth, you don't know how to define love or faith and hope for that matter. And many times we see a misunderstanding of the definition of love in our society today, particularly with regard to marriage. Why do people get married? Well, a lot of times people get married just because they fall in love. That's a good thing. Love falling in love, romance, feelings. Everybody ought to have some. It's wonderful with the right person at the right time. But be careful if you try to make that the foundation that undergirds the skyscraper. Marriage is kind of like a skyscraper. The foundation of the building has to support not only the building itself, but everything that's going to be put in the building, including the traffic coming and going. And it has to be to enable the building to withstand the natural disasters that are going to be coming along in the future. So if the foundation of my marriage is built on romance and feelings, it may begin to crumble in due time. That's a good thing, but we've got to have commitment. We've got to have faithfulness and loyalty and some other things in the foundation. And if you want a real good definition on the foundation of love, look in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude. And Paul gives a long list of things that will make a sturdy foundation of agape love. So we see faith in Christ and love for the saints generated by the gospel in the Colossian church now motivates Paul to do some things. For Paul, he offers thanksgiving to God and prayer for the saints. And we're going to take a look at his prayer now as we close. Intercession for the Colossian church. What did Paul and Timothy pray continually for the Colossian church? There's their prayer. And we're going to take a look at some specific things. But before we do, take a look. Here goes the gospel. When it is heard and understood, it begins to bear fruit and increase. It produces hope and faith and love. Somebody said, when I wait, can hope produce faith and love? I thought it was the other way around. Well, Paul deals with the other way around sometimes, but why not? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And I know that when I had hoped that I would marry Yvonne, it certainly increased my love for her. So I think it can go either way. And then this hope produces faith in Christ, love for the saints among the Colossians, and that, for Paul, produces thanksgiving to God and prayer for the Colossian saints, just the believers in Colossians. So we're going to take a look at his prayer. Paul prayed that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There is what we need, the practical knowledge of God's will. It's contained in the book. We can find about 98% of God's will right there in the Bible. And if we're following that, he can easily guide us to go over here and begin this business or whatever we need to do. Number two, that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What is good knowledge without a good life 
to go along with it. Our lives need to match what we know. And we may need to walk. Then we need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number three, that we might please Him in all respects. If I'm to be like Christ, my goal is to please God, not to please myself. What is it that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. And sometimes that is very difficult. We need God's grace to accomplish it. Number four, that we may bear fruit, that they in Colossae and we as well may bear fruit in every good work. Have you ever done a good work that didn't bear any fruit? That can be discouraging. So when we do the good work, that's only half of it. The other half is to pray to God that He would make that good work to be fruitful. And that's the reason we want to be a praying church. Because we can be doing all kinds of good works all over the place. But unless God makes that to be fruitful, then it may not accomplish too much. And this is what Paul is praying for these people who are doing good works. That their good works may bear fruit. Number five, that they may increase in the knowledge of good. Excuse me, in the knowledge of God and of what is good. Come to Bible study. Learn more about God and the life that He desires for us. Number six, that they may be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that they would be steadfast. Ten years ago, if you were here, you might look around today and you might see some people who were here back then, but they're not here today. And I don't mean people that have just moved away, but some people are not steadfast in the faith. What about ten years from now when all these young people have grown up? Well, they look around and see those who are steadfast in the faith. We need to be praying that we would be strengthened with His power that we might be steadfast. And the last one, that they might be joyously giving thanks to the Father who qualified them and us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul mentions light in 2 Corinthians 4. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And light in the Scripture refers to many things. It refers to holiness. It refers to revelation, to love, to glory. It refers to prosperity, peace, liberty, joy. And that is our inheritance in Christ with the saints in light. One final question. What has God done that God the Father done for us and for the Colossian Christians? 13 and 14, For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He delivered us from darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of light, and He has redeemed us and forgiven our sin. What could be greater than that? You would never have to be in hell. All the people that we come into contact with in the course of life, they don't have to be in hell if they're willing to embrace the gospel. 
But that means we need to be able to present it in a way that can be understood. We need to be able to present it in a way that it's not beating them over the head with the truth, but in a way that it is attractive, that they might see something in our lives that would be different, that would give hope, that they could see some of the peace and joy and love and those things that the gospel brings. Now, you have heard of the gospel. Most of you have heard of the gospel long years ago. Is it bearing fruit in your life to make you more Christ-like and to spread the good news to others? I admit that it's difficult in our culture because there's a strong pull against it, but God says it will grow and it will increase if we've got all the components together not the least of which is prayer. I want to encourage you that if you're not bearing fruit, if you're not growing and increasing, if nothing's happening, if you're just cruising through life, join me in prayer at this time that you might begin to be fruitful. And if you don't know Christ, if you've never embraced the gospel yourself, this would be the day to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing plan of salvation. And we thank you that it's not just that someday we'll go to heaven, but that it's in the meantime we are able and equipped to live the life that you've called us to live, the life Christ lived, a life of blessing, a life of encouragement. Lord, we know that we do these things imperfectly, but we thank you for your forgiveness And we thank you for your strength that enables us to move on and try again to do these things that you've called us to do. We know that it's much easier when your spirit is in control of our lives. Lord, we want to bear fruit. We want to glorify you and we want ourselves to become more like Christ. So we ask that you would guide us to that end. We pray as we study this short epistle in the New Testament, that you would use it to encourage us and strengthen us and motivate us to get out and share the gospel and to support our missionaries who do that on the foreign field. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has never committed his or her life to you, I pray that the gospel today might be fully understood, that it's intended for all of us, man, woman, boy and girl. And all we need to do is confess that we are sinners and we need a Savior and invite your saving grace to be shed abroad into our lives. Oh Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. We are grateful to you and we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.